Well, good morning. As you can tell, I'm not Mitch this morning. So instead of having the bald guy, you have the balding guy. Um, Mitch and Brad and uh, Golden Goss and Eric are actually on their way back from San Francisco today. And uh, there's a whole lot of stuff going on at Three Rivers these days. And one of them is uh, as we're looking to plant a church in the great northwest part of the U.S., and as we are looking to work overseas among our adopted and reached people group, um, there are a fair number of those people from our, our adopted UPG living in our country in San Francisco, um, basically as exiles of their country. And so we are beginning to explore what might that look like for us to minister there? What might that look like for us to partner with some other folks that are already doing ministry there? Uh, what might it look like for ministry here to begin the birth of a church in the U.S. where those people take the gospel back to their families. Um, really cool stuff happening. So y'all pray for them as they are on their way back and pray for us as a church as we are exploring what all that looks like and, and what God would have us do and all of that. Uh, but a lot of really cool and uh, exciting possibilities and things that God is doing right now. So, uh, so we are continuing this morning in this series of helping children understand the gospel. Um, and even though our message is targeted at children, there's an awful lot of application for us of, of all ages uh, because the message of the gospel is not a different message for 5-year-olds or 10-year-olds than it is for 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds or 70-year-olds. Um, the message is the same. The, the application of it changes a little bit, uh, but the message is, is the same. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into our text this morning and uh, see what God is, is going to show us today. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for uh, the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. Uh, thank you that you have not left us on our own, uh, that you have made a way for us to know you. Thank you that even when we are in rebellion against you, God, you did not crush us as your enemies, uh, but you came and you died in our place and for our sin, and that you took what was, uh, what was owed to us. And instead of crushing us as your enemies, you adopted us as children. I've got to pray that as we look at, at, at the realities of our sin, um, God, I pray that you would cause us to see the gravity of, of that. Uh, but more than that, I pray that you would cause us to see the gravity of your grace. Father, be with us as we look at your word today. Amen. So we've been looking at this passage from Matthew 13 as our overarching text, this parable that Jesus tells of the sower uh, and the seed and we're actually we're not going to be looking at that this morning, so some of you are starting to flip. We're, we're still kind of using that as our overarching theme, but we're actually going to be in Romans this week. Um, but we've, we've been looking at this as our overarching theme and, and asking some questions. And so the first week we, we asked the question, who is the sower? And uh, the answer is very basically it is God, and ultimately it is also us as his ambassadors, as Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, we've looked at the question, what is the seed? And the seed is the gospel, this story of, of creation 
and our fall and redemption and restoration and ultimate consummation in Christ. Um, this glorious message of the gospel, we've looked at that. Um, last week, Mitch talked a little bit about the fact that there is no good news without the bad news. And that we have to understand um, that we need to be saved from something. When we talk about being saved, we're not just saved from an idea. We're, we're saved from the reality of, of God's judgment on us outside of Christ. Um, and so next week we are going to look at, um, the next few weeks we're going to look at how do we sow and how do we tend, how do we harvest, how do we lead a child to salvation, and what are some of the evidences of saving faith. Um, but today's question is, what kind of soul is in the hearts of children? And by extension, what kind of soul is in the hearts of, of us as adults outside of Christ? Um, so last week, Mitch walked us through Romans 1, um, 1, 2, and a little bit of 3. And we looked at how God's wrath is revealed against sin. And we looked at how God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness and the fact that he is a righteous judge who judges sin. And when we were saved, we're not just saved from our sin. It's not our sin that is going to be the judge of us. It is ultimately God who judges sin. And ultimately, we are saved from his wrath. Um, so this week, we're looking at the effect of our sin in our hearts. And we're looking at Romans 3, 9 through 20. And I'm going to read this for us. And just at the outset... Just tell you, this is a heavy passage this week, um, and I want you to hear the weight of this as I read it, um, and then we're going to mine out some implications of it. So this is Romans 3, after, after Paul um, comes on the backside of, of talking about God's um, just judgment of sin. I'm going to start in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And... In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth must be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You may be asking, why would we focus on the bad part of the news of the gospel two weeks in a row. Um, I will tell you very candidly, that was my question as I looked at this text for this week. Um, I preach five times-ish a year. Um, and so my first sinful, natural reaction as I looked at this passage was, I don't want to let Mitch tell people that their five-year-olds are, are sinful and, and their mouth is, is full of curses and bitterness. Why don't I let Mitch tell them these things? Um, it's not a pleasant reality to, to look at, but it is, it is what Scripture tells us. Um, and I think it is vital that we get this. Um, it's, it's still the gospel, and if we believe the gospel, we have to look at it, we have to understand it. Because here's, here's the ultimate reality. 
sin infects every area of our life. Every area. It affects everything that we do. Um, we have to learn to identify that sin in our lives and in the lives of our children. We have to learn to combat that by the power of the gospel. Um, otherwise, we end up with a moralism and we end up with a feel-good Christianity that does not do anything to truly deal with our sin. So this is not about, um, today is not about beating you down or beating your kids down or, or focusing on the fact that we are completely worthless. This is not about uh, beating people down, but it's about looking at a right and biblical view of how God sees us outside of Christ. And also in that, seeing the incredible, incredible mercy of God as he saved us. Um, it's the bedrock and the foundation about which we build our life and our confidence in God. And if we forget or we minimize a component of the gospel, we lose the full meaning of it. We lose the full appreciation for what God has actually done on our behalf. And we lose the vibrancy of our walk with him and our worship for him. Um, so I want to jump back to Romans 3. And as, as we start, what I want to do is I want to walk through this passage and I want us to, to look at some applications of, okay, well, what do we, te- what do, we do with this in, in light of particularly parenting? How do we apply this passage as we look at how we're raising our kids? Um, and I'll tell you in that, Jenny and I are in the middle of this. Um, we've got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And so we are learners right now uh, along with you guys. Um, and we're learning a lot of things um, that it's, it's different when you learn it firsthand versus learning it um, by the book. And so uh, we, are, we are learners alongside you guys with this. Um, but let's jump back to, to Romans 3. So Paul has just had this extended discussion of sin and God's wrath. And when he comes to Romans 3.9, he, he draws a conclusion here. And then there's an implication. He draws a conclusion. He supports that conclusion. And there's an implication from that um, that I think we really need to get this morning. The conclusion is in verse 9. He says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That phrase is going to be important. I don't want to dig into it right now, but we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. That we are all under sin. That's his, that's his basic conclusion here. Um, and then he comes back and supports it, um, verse 10 all the way through 18, with all of these Old Testament quotations. And this is, um, this is the most extensive in one place uh, quoting of the Old Testament in, in your New Testament. Um, Paul basically picks out from several places in Psalms and Isaiah and Proverbs, um, different places to demonstrate uh, our condition apart from Christ. And then the implication is at the end of this, that in, in uh, verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, but that none of us are justified by keeping the law or by trying to keep the law. So that's kind of where I want us to go this morning and take a look at that. Um, and I think, as I said, this, this part in verse, verse 9, the way that he says this is important, that we are all under sin. 
Um, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. So, um, and just as an aside, as we jump into this, as you, if you look back, if you look in your Bible, if you have footnotes that kind of show you where he's pulling these passages from, um, you'll see in Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah that Paul is selectively quoting from these passages that normally are used, um, that are describing how God deals with the enemies of Israel and how God deals with his enemies um, and deals with those that don't fear him. And there is this tendency within Israel particularly, and I think also within the church sometimes, um, to think that, well, God's going to judge those people. This is how God deals with those people, but God doesn't deal with Israel this way. God doesn't deal with my family this way. Um, and I think the, the point that he's trying to make is outside of Christ, all of us are in that, are, are in that uh, category or in that, that state of being opposed to him and are under his, his uh, judgment and are affected by our sin. So let's, let's just kind of walk through this. There's a few things that I want us to, to see out of these verses um, about the effect of sin on us. Um, first of all, sin affects our mind. It affects our thinking. Um, it distorts and it twists our understanding of who God is. Verse 11 says, starting in the second half of verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Because we are all under sin, that sin has twisted our understanding, and twisted our ability to seek and to know God. Um, and we are, we are not seeking for him. It distorts and it twists our goals, and we see that in the same passage, that verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It, it completely twists our, our uh, desire and our ultimate goal of where we're going with our life. Um, we see here that sin affects and distorts our speech. In verses 13 and 14, he kind of walks through Everything having to do with our speech apparatus. He says, the throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You see how it, it, the sin that is within us comes out in the way that we speak. Um, Jesus in Matthew 12 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he's talking about um, the sinful nature that we have and how that is evident and when we speak, that that comes out. Um, we see in this passage also that sin distorts our behavior and our relationships. Uh, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they've not known. There's no fear before their eyes. That it distorts our, our relationship with each other. And it distorts our relationship with God. Um, these are pretty hard things to hear, aren't they? I mean, this is not the kind of description that we want to think about. When I look at my kids, when I look at, um, you know, a, a five and a three and a one and a half year old, I, I, I think, well, my first reaction is I know that they're sinners, but I don't think that they, their feet are swift to shed blood. I don't think that, that they're that bad. But the reality of the gospel says, yeah, apart from Christ, they are. Um, and that's part of what we talked about last week is not minimizing the impact and the effect of sin. Because when we do that, we begin to trust ourselves, We begin to trust our own works. 
And what Paul does in this passage is completely destroy anything that is works-based righteousness, anything that we can earn God's favor. Um, and, and he puts us all on level ground before the cross. Um, so the big picture here is that we are all under sin, and its effects impact every area of life. Um, and in verse 19, Paul announces the effect of, of all of these verses um, that we've just read. He says, Now that we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The, the picture here is these passages that we've read, 10 through 18. This is like God's word being the prosecuting attorney. And we are the defendant. And every step along the way, we want to say, but, but, and no, here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. And at the end, there's nothing that we can do to defend ourselves that it closes our mouth to, to, to bring up any objection of our righteousness before God. Um, it's a pretty, pretty uh, airtight statement of our guilt here. Um, and, and what we have to realize as we look at this is that we are at the mercy of God who is our judge and that at, at this point he is about to, he is righteous in pronouncing sentence. Um, so the implication of this is in verse 20. He says, For by the works of the law, no human beings will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It tells us that the law does not save us. Trying to keep the law does not save us because we can't. Um, what it does is it, it makes us painfully aware of our sin. It makes us... Um, vividly aware of how short of God's perfection that we are. So I want to come back to verse 9 at this point and talk about this phrase, under sin, because I think that this is a particularly important description that Paul uses, and I, don't, I think his grammar is specific and intentional here, and I think you see that in the rest of Romans as well. Um, Paul doesn't say here, that people commit sins every now and then. He doesn't say that we are all sinners, that we're just sinners, that this is just a problem that we have every now and then. Um, he says that we are all under sin. And that, that language, under sin, implies that we are dominated by it. It implies that we are in slavery to it. It implies that it is um, something that we cannot shake. Um, the point is, this is our, we are prisoners of sin. And we'll see, Paul does talk about this more uh, later in Romans 6. And we'll, we'll take a look at that in, in just a little bit. Uh, but we're not just in the habit of committing sins every now and then. This is not an occasional problem for us. This is not an occasional problem for our kids. This is the way that we are outside of Christ. This is the way that we live. This is the air that we breathe. Um, this is the way that we live on a daily basis. And we're enslaved to it. Um, I think this point is important because until we understand exactly what the problem is, we don't come up with a right solution. Um, I think you see that this played out. Let me give you a couple of examples outside of Scripture. You see this played out when, in a lot of ways, when people don't understand what the problem is, trying to come up with an answer. So politically, in Marxism, what do you see? 
You see, the, the problem people think is, well, there's an unequal distribution of wealth, so we should just distribute everything equally. Everybody will be equal and everything will be okay. But that completely ignores the human condition of sin. And so what you have is everybody kind of has equal stuff until somebody comes over here on the side and says, well, I can get away with this and nobody will know. I, I can do this and nobody will know. I can be corrupt here and nobody will know. Um, it doesn't work out practically. Um, some people think that man's basic problem is that we're ignorant. And so the problem to that, the solution to that is that we just get more education and we just get more knowledge. And if you know more, you do better and everything is going to work out fine. But teaching people um, and just giving people more knowledge is not the answer to our problems. It doesn't change our heart's desire. Um, there are, our jails are full of people that know what they did was wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't for lack of knowing uh, what they did was wrong that kept them from doing it. It's a basic sin problem. Um, nobody is going to argue with us today that meth is a deadly thing and is a bad thing. But there are a lot of people hooked on it. Um, and it's, it's not an issue of knowledge. It's an issue of, uh, of rebellion and sin and, and ultimately deciding that we know what's better than what God does. Um, on, a, on a very personal level to me, um, we know we know better more today probably than we have at any time in history the what we should eat and the proper level of nutrition and all those kinds of things and yet our society is probably more unhealthy than we've ever been um, and so it's not an issue of knowledge it's an issue of um, making our desires subject to God and um, our rebellion against him so this is the Bible's analysis of our predicament. It's that we're under sin, that we're addicted to sin, and we're addicted to destructive rebellion. We're imprisoned under it, and we're unable to set ourselves free. Um, so teaching is, is a very good thing, and that's, that's hopefully what I'm doing this morning. That's, we believe that the, the preaching of the word is powerful and effective, and it's the means that God uses to bring salvation. Um, but teaching is not the end. It's not the end purpose. It is for us to, um, to see our sin, to cry out to God, and to ultimately give him worship uh, and praise for what he's done. So when we see our, the, rea- the reason that we're going through this passage is because we need to see this reality in our own lives. We also need to see it in the lives of our children. Because when we do see that in the lives of our children, the way that we parent them changes. Um, when we see them as captives of sin, we're better motivated to help them. We are better motivated to help them see Christ as the liberator who comes to rescue them. Um, and we, we proclaim the gospel to them instead of giving them a moralism um, and just rules to follow. And so I want to, I from this, try to pull out some application points of, okay, well, we understand this. Now, what do we do with this as parents? Um, and... Uh, and, and see what we can what we can glean from this. I think one thing we have to recognize is that our kids are under sin outside of Christ's redemptive work on them. Um, and so when they act accordingly, when they act like they are under sin, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, it, what I'm not saying is we shouldn't. I'm not saying we shouldn't discipline them because I think we should. I think biblical discipline is is proper and is right and is necessary. Um, But I also think we should be realistic 
and we should we should understand what the purpose of discipline is um, and the the effects of that because discipline is not going to make our kids good. Um, Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. They're still going to be under sin as we discipline them. Um, And so what we don't want to do is just make them compliant to what we want them to do, but their heart is still uh, in rebellion to God. Um, So there's a, there's a, there's this recognition that our kids are, are under sin and that as we discipline them, we don't discipline them just to get some outcome that we want, but we discipline them in the grace of God and we show them the grace and mercy of God as we discipline them. Um, we need to show and tell our kids that our love for them is, is not conditioned on their obedience. Um, I think it's, it's easy for us to slip into this role of approving our kids when they do what we say and disapproving them when they don't and teaching them by that, by implication, um, a very works-based righteousness. Um, so we don't need to communicate to them that they're justified by what they do to us or how they react to us. Um, we need to, to teach them that we love them no matter what, and yet because of that, we want God's best for them. Um, we are to imitate God, as, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.1, to our kids so that ultimately our lives look like the gospel. Um, and there's a, there's a whole discussion to be had here. I don't know if, if now is the right time to do it, but on the role of law and grace in parenting. Um, and I think there, is, there are definitely times, especially as kids are younger, to be more focused on law with them because they don't understand the concept of grace and they, they're not going to get it. But as they age, to be more grace-based with them um, and help them understand the heart behind and the intent behind what God is doing um, and, and by proxy what we're doing in, in disciplining them. Um, otherwise, what happens, I think, ultimately is we either get, we get kids that are so wrapped up um, or get so discouraged by this, this strict, strict law thing that they can't wait. They're just, they turn into rebellious kids and they can't wait to get out of the house and just get away from us as quickly as they can. Or, and we see this in our house, we have one compliant kid and we have one sort of rebellious kid. Um, and so the compliant kids that, that comply, if you, if you get so law-based, um, they become the ones that kind of look down their noses at everybody else and like, well, I'm better than you are. Why, aren't you, why can't you get your act together? And the ones that end up being rebellious, it causes despair in them if we go too far towards the law because they're like, I can't, I can't do this. You know what? I'm out of here. Forget it. Um, and so there's, there's a balance there uh, between appropriate use of law with them and also um, grace and, and helping them understand God's purpose and discipline. Um, we looked at, at, at Romans here and, and saw that sin impacts and affects our mind. And so one of the things that we need to do is, as well is focus on children's understanding of the gospel. Um, and what I mean by that is as we teach Scripture to our kids, to focus not, it's important, it is very important that they learn the facts of Scripture, that they learn the stories of Scripture, but not as important as they understand the meaning behind it. Um, to focus on the, the fact that they are getting the purpose and they're getting the meaning there. Um, so, you know, if, if we, 
if our methodology just helps them do a fill-in-the-blank thing and they can spell out forgiveness, but they don't understand what forgiveness is, have we helped them in that? Um, if our methodology helps them memorize something, but they don't have any idea what it is that they've memorized or what the application for that is, have we really helped them? Um, and I think one of the best ways you can do that is just using everyday life and everyday conversations as object lessons. Um, one, of the, one that just smacked me across the forehead in the last, uh, last couple of weeks was our kids went to Fifth Avenue Baptist Church to their vacation Bible school, which was a great VBS. Um, and they gave them a soundtrack that had some songs on it. And one of them is, uh, what's the name of the song? Um, it, anyway, the, the, the lyric says, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. And so our kids are singing this three-year-old and a five-year-old, and I said, what does that mean? Tell me, what is, what is sin? What does it mean that your sin is upon the cross? And they've, they've memorized the song, and they're singing it, but they didn't have any idea what it meant. So it was a perfect opportunity to sit down with them and say, let's talk about what this means. Let's talk about what it means um, that, that we have sin. What, what was the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why was he on that cross? Why was my sin upon that cross? Um, just asking some, some why and how and critical questions with your kids and listen to what they say will give you a big idea of, of if they're getting the impact of and if they're getting understanding or if they're just getting facts uh, because there's a big difference there. Um, and and kind of going along with that, we need to teach our children about Jesus and not just giving them moral lessons. Um, for example, I have seen some, um, and as an aside, I'm thinking in my head as I'm talking about this, I love our children's curriculum in Radical Kids. Y'all, this is awesome, awesome stuff. Um, I love the things that we're doing there because this, that curriculum is exactly what I'm talking about. It does give them facts, but it gives them the meaning behind it. Um, but I've seen some, some children's curriculum that basically turns a lot of scripture into moral lessons. So... The fact that Daniel was in the, in the uh, lion's den, the, the lesson we should draw from that is we should be courageous. That's not the lesson at all. The lesson is that God rescues those who cry out to him and that Daniel was, was, uh, was confident that God could do whatever he needed to do and that he was confident that even if, if the lions ate him, that God was going to be just and right. Um, so it's important that we don't just give them moral lessons or that we, we like we uh, distill David and Goliath down to, um, well, it's the little guy can beat up the big guy if God's on his side. Um, God was justifying and vindicating his name there. And the point is that he was doing that and that he will use even the weakest uh, to do that against those that we see as the strongest. So it's important that we don't just moralize Scripture with them, um, that they see the, the intent and the, part, the heart behind that. Um, we see that, too, with, with John the Baptist. I don't know if y'all, if y'all talk through this with small kids, but I think a lot of times the, the, what they come away with is, well, John was kind of a weird dude. He ate bugs, and he lived out in the desert, and he wore strange clothes. And all of that is true. Those are important facts for them to remember. But what's the big point? Well, the big point is that John was heralding the coming of Christ, the one who would redeem us. Um, so teach for 
understanding with your kids. Teach for big picture understanding. Um, and then, you know, you don't overlook the details. This is a, a resource. I wanted to just kind of highlight this because Mitch talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We've been using this in our house um, for the last little bit, and this is a fantastic thing if you have uh, kids in your elementary school. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I know some of you all have been through perspectives on the world Christian movement. This is kind of like perspectives for elementary school kids uh, because what it does is it goes through the Bible and tells you the stories, but it also connects them to the big picture. And so when you're in Genesis and God cast Adam and Eve out of the, the garden, it connects it to the fact that that's not the end of the story because God had a plan even then to ultimately rescue them. Um, God had a plan even then to ultimately crush the head of the serpent. So if you have elementary school kids, I would highly, highly recommend this. Uh, I'll have it around if you want to look at it. I think you can get it on Amazon for 12, 15 bucks, something like that. Really good resource. And there are a lot of other good things like that. Uh, the, like I said, the, the curriculum that we're using now from Desiring God is great uh, to, to help with those kinds of things. Uh, but just be engaged as parents. Um, one point I do want to make, and this was made in the, the booklet that we gave out to parents. And by the way, if you didn't get one of those, um, we still have some extra and would love to, to put one of those in your hands. Um, that most children are not yet hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as Hebrews 3.13 talks about. And so they do often respond to spiritual teaching. Um, and so we should take every opportunity that we have to impart, to impart spiritual truth to them. And as they, they hear the stories of the Bible and sing songs about Jesus, um, we, should, we should be very open to share that with them. And in that, we should also be open um, as they as they respond to God, to test that, to not doubt that, but also be wise in how we, we view their response to God because children will do things, they want to please their parents, um, and we don't want to create an, an expectation in them that they respond in a certain way that God is not yet working in their heart and so that we give them a false assurance of salvation when it has not yet happened. Um, and Mitch is going to be talking about more of that in the weeks to come. But I think it's very important that we, that we maximize every opportunity that we can to talk to our kids um, about the issue of the gospel, but also not uh, create an expectation or a pressure for them to react in a certain way in, in order to please us um, when they haven't fully understood and fully uh, been transformed. Um, on the flip side of that, I think it's also important for us to remember that the children don't have to understand everything about the Bible to be saved. And I thank God for that in my own life. I thank God for that in the lives of even of adults. You know, we don't have to be able to completely articulate the doctrine of the Trinity to trust Jesus. We don't have to completely be able to articulate the reliability of Scripture to trust Jesus. And so um, we, don't wanna, we don't wanna set the bar artificially high beyond what Scripture says, but we also don't wanna set it so low or create a false uh, expectation for our kids or a false sense of them um, trying to please us that, that, uh, that causes them to miss the mark. Um, I, I really like this quote from D. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones. He says, We must be careful that we do not modify the gospel to, to suit various age groups. There is no such thing as a special gospel for the young, a special gospel for the middle-aged, 
and a special gospel for the aged. There is only one gospel, and we must always be careful not to tamper and tinker with the gospel as a result of recognizing these age distinctions. At the same time, there is difference in applying this one and only gospel to the very different age groups, but it is a difference which is referenced only to method and procedure. So it's, it's, it's important that we don't, we don't change the message of the gospel, that as we look at passages like this that are uncomfortable for us on the front end to think about these, especially in reference to our children who, you know, because they have not been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, we do see um, a, a measure of innocence in them. But it's also important that we recognize that apart from Christ, they are without hope. And that that urgency um, is, is, comes through in, in the way that we parent them, in the way we explain the gospel to them, and the way that we lead and, and discipline them. Um, and also, we need to remember that all of this is a long-term proposition. Um, this is something that is going to take a lifetime for our kids to, to see, to hear, respond, and give their lives to the gospel. And sometimes that's a, sometimes children respond at a very young age, uh, but it's still a lifetime learning of, of fully what that means. And so um, I guess in that I want to say relax and trust God and trust that he will be good and that he will do things in his timing and be obedient to, uh, to what he calls us to do. Um, trust that he will do what only he can do in calling us from death into life. Um, and we see that we see that very clearly in Ephesians 2, um, that God calls from death to life. I'm going to read it real quick. Because I think this is a beautiful picture of what God has done in those that he calls um, and, and a good reminder for us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Part of those good works for us as parents is to be faithful to share the gospel, the totality of the gospel with our kids, um, and to trust him that he will, in his time, uh, bring about the proper response uh, to him. Let me pray for us, and then let's respond to, to what God... I know this is a, a kind of a heavy message, um, but it's a, I think it's a very necessary thing for us to, to see um, and respond to that properly. So let's, let's pray and then we'll respond in worship. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would cause it to land on our hearts. Uh, I pray that your spirit 
which is our counselor and our guidance, um, who leads us into truth, would do that work. Uh, God, I pray for all of us that we would come face to face with the reality of our sin outside of Christ and that we would come face to face with the incredible gift of salvation, how it is that you have pardoned those, not just pardoned, but adopted those who put their faith in you. God, would you cause us to parent our children as if their eternity depends on it? Uh, Would you cause us to love them and to teach them the full counsel of the Word of God, uh, and cause us to respond to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.